You hear a piece of music that will change your ideas, uh, change your, your whole outlook forever. And this next piece of music did that for me. I had never heard anything like this, ever. And when it came out my radio, I just st stood still. I was gobsmacked. It was amazing, this great, totally different, uh, different sound, different attitude, a very quirky, funny thing. Um, and I, th I think most people have a piece of music that they can relate to and they can remember exactly uh, who they were with when, when that piece of music was played or, or, or was around or, or, or who they fancied or what they were doing at that time. Well, I remember being completely knocked over when I heard this and had to change my entire opinion on, on music and how music should be done. This is Sparks and this town ain't big enough for both of us. Happy 2020, humans, although your time is a useless construct for me, computer girl. Christian recorded his narration prior to the announcement of the newest Sparks album. The album has been titled A Steady Drip, 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 and is due out on May 15th. On the same day as the album announcement, Sparks announced tour dates in Europe for the autumn. The voice you heard at the top of today's episode is that of mid-year from the band Ultravox. The clips of covers of this town were performed by the following artists, Sparks, Susie and the Banshees, Justin Hawkins, Sparks again with Faith No More, Milena Ehrnman, Heaven's Gate, and finally Sparks once more. Hello again, Rasafarians and Ronscapalians. Welcome to another exciting episode of All You Ever Think About is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast chronicling the life and career of Ron and Russell Mail, a.k.a. Sparks. I'm your host, Christian Huey, and I'm happy to be back doing this show here in the year 2020. As I mentioned in the last episode of 2019, 2020 is pregnant with the promise of lots of brand new musical brain babies from Sparks. As of this recording, we don't yet have release dates for either the movie musical Annette, the Edgar Wright documentary, nor the as-of-yet-untitled new Sparks album. 
Something is clearly afoot in Sparksland, however, as Ron and Russell spent the last couple of weeks of uh, January teasing us with what just may be artwork from the aforementioned forthcoming album. Watch this space for details. Next, uh, a couple of brief corrections to our last episode. First, I had said that uh, Chris Townsend had been the singer for the band Juke. This is not so. Uh, Townsend was Juke's drummer. The vocalist was Ian Kimmett. Uh, secondly, the brother who inadvertently gave Martin Gordon confusing directions to the studio due to his American twang was Russell, not Ron. And thanks to Rud Swart, friend of the podcast, for offering those corrections. And now, the episode at hand. When we last left Sparks, they were plugging away in Island Records Studios, making what would end up being their smash hit, the seminal Kimono My House album. I'm going to put that album under the microscope over the next hour. That actually... no, scratch that. I'll just be covering side one of that album. You see, while researching this point in Sparks's history, I realized that since there was... So much ink spilled over the album's first single alone that I'd be paying better tribute to Kimono My House by divvying it up over two episodes. There's a lot to say about Kimono My House, and I'd hate to leave out anything crucial. So, here we go with Episode 8, Kimono My House, Part 1 of 2. Richard Williams, in the Island Records retrospective tome, Keep On Running, called it, quote, wonderfully camp and melodramatically multifaceted. In 2016, music critic John Savage listed his 20 best glam rock songs of all time for The Guardian. Coming in at 17, he opined of the song. They took a song with the lyric, you hear the thunder of stampeding rhinos, elephants, and tacky tigers all the way to number two and made it seem natural. There's no question that of all of Sparks' hits, near misses, and regional flukes, This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us is the quintessential Sparks song. A writer for All Music Guide even asserted when reviewing one of many Sparks' best of discs, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the collection would be just as good if it only had this town put on repeat about 14 times. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, and you are, you could probably hit pause right now, you're such a big Sparks fan, and be able to sing the entire song a cappella with no lyric sheet. Well, maybe you could try. Despite the song's ubiquity on karaoke song lists throughout the world, it's not an easy song to sing, especially with a room full of drunk revelers with suddenly quizzical expressions when you start. I know this from experience. Today, This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us stands unquestioningly as Ron and Russell Mayle's crowning achievement in the wider rock pantheon. And here we are, a couple of generations after the song's debut in early 1974. It was, literally, the shot heard round the world, to wit. An engineer in the control room added that infamous Western movie-style gunshot to the track because he felt it was missing something. 
You spin up Kimono My House, the song's parent album, and you'll first hear Ron Mayle's electric RMI piano uh, emerging from below the horizon, fading in. Staccato chords in A major played as rapid eighth notes above middle C. Higher than that, you hear a simple short phrase repeating incessantly. After a few bars, you feel an unmistakable sensation of advancing menace as the music continues getting louder, the notes insistent. An urgent voice begins to sing over the notes, and there's an imperceptible shift to 3-4 time. The singer has an, has an uncomfortably high register. You're not sure if it's a man or a woman. The singer intones, Zoo time, is she in you time, the mammals are your favorite type, you better want her tonight. What are we on, Safari and the Serengeti? The singer continues and follows the notes of the melody up to a peak and then jerking your attention down and then back up again the scale. Heartbeat, increasing heartbeat. You hear the thunder of stampeding rhinos, elephants, and tacky tigers. And then a moment of monotonal but urgent enunciation from just the singer with an even more anxious staccato. He issues a call, a threat. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. A guitar issues a four-note reply in tandem with a gunshot, firing the opening salvo. And then the punch. And it ain't me who's gonna leave. Then the full band kicks in with the drums pounding out the aforementioned heartbeats. The guitar mimics the original keyboard riff again and again, ready for this mano a mano. After a couple bars of tension building, a cymbal crashes and the singer starts the second verse with full urgency, flying, domestic flying, and for the next two plus minutes you're flying alongside a helpless bystander to the unfolding drama. But let's back up a bit to that one part. Right. Pop music has a storied history of pasting pre-recorded sound effects directly over the music in a song. Can you imagine Pink Floyd's money without the ching of the cash register or the clickety-clack of cars careening past in Kraftwerk's Autobahn? Or how about the Beatles' startling rooster crow that kicks off Good Morning, Good Morning? Years before hip-hop demolished the rules of pop music composition with sampling techniques, innovative producers, like Muff Winwood were finding ways to stamp oral trademarks on pop songs that just needed that extra oomph to grab listeners' attentions through the speakers. Producer Muff Winwood has been often credited with adding in those gunshot sounds to This Town Ain't Big Enough, but he insists that this was done at the whim of engineer Richard Digby Smith. Now, oddly, the song's Wikipedia entry credits an engineer by the name of David Hutchins as the idea man behind the gunshot, not Digby Smith. Uh, I, however, am trusting Winwood's words on this one. Said Winwood to Daryl Islea, He'd found a BBC sound effects record in the studio with the gunshots on it. He played the track with the effects over, and that was it. It just sounded fantastic. You know, you can imagine 
the very same sound in any of Sergio Leone's spaghetti westerns. I myself am not well-versed enough in firearms to say what gun is responsible for that report, and I haven't been able to find that from my digging. Um, with its extended ring, you know, I, I don't know if it's a pistol or a revolver or a shotgun, but the effect of hearing the sound is instantly transporting to another time and place. Sparks were frequently said, especially during those years, to, uh, to have conjured up images of the 1940s, what with Ron's dictatorial mustache, echoes of French resistance cabaret music, and old-school gender politics. But that single sound seemed to pull listeners into a John Wayne Western of that era. The 40s, I mean. Indeed, as Joseph Fleury later wrote, if only one John Wayne movie was one-tenth as exciting as this track, we could forgive him his expanding paunch. Powerful stuff. Helping to maximize the effect of the sound effect was its economical use. It was used just three times in the song, and then even then just barely. Once during the first verse, and then twice in rapid succession, back-to-back, during the song's climax during uh, the middle eight. And that's it. Uh, But enough talk. Let's go ahead and have a listen to This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us. Thank you. 
To say this town ain't big enough made a splash in the British charts is kind of like saying the first moon landing was a bit ambitious. Um, although Ron and Russell spread a false story stating just the opposite, and really who the hell knows why, uh, Elton John famous, famously told his neighbor, Muff Winwood that he bet a hundred pounds that this town would be a massive hit. Not that it wouldn't be a massive hit. And of course he was right. Uh, and the song was the perfect way for people who had heard Sparks before. It was the perfect way for Sparks to reintroduce themselves as a glam rock band. Um, as the American brothers had come galloping onto the glam rock scene pretty much the same way that song had ambushed the eardrums of the listening public. Now, during 1974, the single would reach number two in the UK charts, four in Belgium and the Netherlands, seven in Switzerland, and 15 in France. Now, unlike the quirky Geisha Girl cover for the full album, and we'll get into that more in the next episode. Uh, the artwork used for the singles sleeve featured a full band photo staring directly into the camera in um, kind of a menacing fashion, with uh, Russell in the center staring dead-eyed at the prospective record buyer. He seems to be kind of daring you to pick up the record and take it home. This town slotted in nicely alongside other glam hits of the period, but it breathed a sorely needed burst of fresh air into the genre. Uh, that year, Bowie had released an album inspired by 1984, the book, and Rebel Rebel aside, it was a little too ponderous for a lot of Ziggy fans. Uh, Brian Eno had left Roxy Music, and meanwhile, Brian Ferry and company had started to embrace a more autumnal sound uh, with Roxy Music. Queen had started out promisingly, but in 1974 was faltering commercially and wouldn't gain ground again until Bohemian Rhapsody made them megastars one year later. In the UK, at least, 1974 looked like it would be Sparks' time to shine. Now, like so many hit singles to stand the test of time, this town isn't easy to fully decipher lyrically, and it doesn't really pay off from attempts to do so. In broad strokes, it's a familiar theme to Ron Mayle, both the primacy and the mystery of human mating rituals. What gives the song's lyrics a seat-squirming element is Ron's um, blending of human sexual politics with predator-prey relationships in the animal kingdom. It's kind of unsettling. And the title seems to imply that uh, the narrator doesn't seek merely to seduce the opposing party, but to annihilate them. But again, it's likely Ron wasn't intending to weave together a coherent idea and just thought that the rhythm of the words sounded good. The B-side selected for the single was an early favorite during Kimono My House's recording sessions, but it was deemed a poor fit for the album. Barbecutie was certainly a less dramatic track than its flipside cousin, but it stands as Martin Gordon's most distinguished contribution as Sparks' abbreviated tenures, the, uh, the band's bass player, boasting a very sticky R&B groove, Barbecutie would go on to be a live favorite with not only Sparks, but also with uh, Gordon's subsequent band Jet. 
Lyrically, the song is slight and one of Ron's more minor efforts as a wordsmith, in my opinion. Um, a surface reading offers a sketch of a man now living in a snowy climate and missing his backyard barbecue pit, maybe? Or uh, maybe the barbecue in question is a pet name for a woman that the protagonist still pines for, someone he had to leave behind somewhere down at a sunnier latitude. Whatever the words mean, the music really, really does jam, and it's clear that Gordon and Dinky Diamond are having uh, just a blast bringing in some um, honest-to-God, unselfconscious funkiness to a spark song. Uh, def definitely a, a novelty for them at that point. Despite its orphaned status as a B-side, it should be noted also that Barbecue was never considered a throwaway number. Uh, in those early recording sessions, the band generally agreed uh, that that was going to be the debut single off the album. I mean, that bass groove, the chorus that hits you out of nowhere. Indeed, it was Muff Winwood's then unpopular but clearly prescient suggestion that this town should take the honors of being the first single. Um, and, and, and oddly, Barbecue wouldn't make it onto the album at all. And here's Barbecue right now.
The single for This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us, backed with Barbecuity, was released in mid-March, and although it eventually became a smash hit, it didn't catch fire right out of the gate. Nicky Horn was the first British DJ to play it on his London Capital Radio show on March 18. That very evening, John Peel played it on his national show, national show, to a wider audience, so it was a pretty promising enough start. Uh, the song did gain more ground over the next month and a half, but it wouldn't be a full-on phenomenon until Sparks was finally able to play Top of the Pops. As consequential as This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us may be in, in rock and roll lore uh, of the era, perhaps even more so was Sparks' long-awaited main nine appearance on Top of the Pops, Britain's single most-watched music television show at that time. An estimated 14 million viewers tuned in to watch TOTP each week. Definitely a staggering figure in 1974, let alone for a TV show anywhere in the world today in 2020, aside from maybe televised major sporting events. Sparks' management had to jump through some hoops to get them onto that show, as the show's producer, Robin Nash, was legally unable to book an American band that were most likely not members of the British Musicians Union, they were, actually, and would need work visas to appear on the show. They did not have those visas. Frustrated but undeterred by the cancellation of Sparks's initially scheduled appearance on top of the pops, John Hewlett set about getting those work visas for the two Americans in the band. The band members would stare ruefully at the TV screen on the night they were supposed to be on T.O.P.T. Taking their place was a 50s revival act called The Rubettes with a weightless number called Sugar Baby Love. Instead of Sparks, they would be the ones being seen and heard by 14 million Britons that night. Now, as it happened, Sparks would only have to wait until May 9 for their turn. And when the moment came, they were ready now, Sparks had appeared on British television before when they were a completely American group, but Ron and Russell, with a new, harder-rocking band, had since honed both their sound and, more importantly, their look. Although the British band members weren't out of step with the prescribed fashions for rock bands circa 1974, Ron and Russell were a very different matter, and most definitely, especially Ron... Recently, Ron had his afro-like curls shorn, and he opted to wear a slicked-back do, which made him look more like an accountant or a civil servant, and most likely someone's square dad. Together with his trademark toothbrush mustache and his omnipresent scowl always aimed directly at the camera, Ron's visage was as scary as it was arresting. As he had trained himself to do for a few years now, Ron was careful to move his body as little as possible while playing the keyboard. His role was that of the outsider, and he played it to unsettling perfection. This, of course, all served to uh, contrast with uh, Russell's modus operandi. Russell played into the androgynous look and manner of some of the more outre frontmen of the era, sporting shoulder-length curls, wearing a woman's scarf, and um, hip uh, hugger suits with shoulder pads. 
Russell swiveled his hips and he worked his shoulders and and he matched his seamless falsetto delivery with that weird bug-eyed glare. The uh, gestalt that emerged from seeing these visual opposites would not have been new for anyone who was lucky to enough to catch uh, Sparks' performance the first time around, uh, about a year and a half uh, before from their first European tour, but for millions of Britons. The 1974 Top of the Pops appearance was their very first impression of the odd figures of the Mail Brothers. It's impossible to discuss British society's introduction to Sparks on that TV appearance without discussing Ron Mail's mustache. And it's impossible to discuss Ron Mail's mustache without invoking the name Adolf Hitler. As Dave Thompson notes, even when journalists asked Ron about his resemblance to Charlie Chaplin, they were thinking about Hitler. And one couldn't dismiss the psychological impact of seeing a Hitler lookalike on national TV in the UK, even in 1974. 1974 was only 29 years after the end of World War II, and the specter of jack-booted thugs killing or dragging off a generation of young British men, or the, the firebombing of London, which led to many civilian casualties, this was understandably fresh in the minds of many, many Britons of a certain age. In retrospect, credit must be given to British society in general, who didn't assume that a Ron Hitler link was Sparks' intent. That millions of people accepted Sparks in general, and Ron in particular, as purveyors of something perhaps challenging, but certainly not threatening. I think that speaks to the impressive open-mindedness of people in Great Britain in the mid-70s, and especially among the uh, youth who were uh, tuned into pop culture. The Top of the Pops performance of This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us proved to be nearly as monumental for future bands in the television audience as the Beatles on Ed Sullivan's appearance had been ten years previously. At least two members of Duran Duran later professed inspiration from that televised moment, as did John Lydon of the Sex Pistols and Public Image Limited, Morrissey, the Pet Shop Boys, Depeche Mode, New Order, Susie Sue, and dozens of other acts who would go on to define the pop landscape of the 1980s and early 90s. Even American bands, uh, such as Future Sparks collaborators Faith No More, drank deeply from that song's well of intense sonic dynamics, apocalyptic imagery, and a healthy dose of postmodern camp. Some of these acts, and dozens more in the, uh, in the preceding years, would record their own cover versions of this town, easily making that song the most heavily covered in the entire Sparks canon. Sparks themselves covered the song not once, but twice on the 1997 album of self-covers, Plagiarism, including one uh, featuring an appropriately aggressive vocal delivery by Faith No More's Mike Patton. Less seen at the time was the promotional video cut um, directed by Rosie Samwell Smith, who was the wife of ex-Yardbird Paul Samwell Smith. It was an extravagance for most bands at that time to be able to shoot a narrative music video, particularly on film, as was this town. Shot at the well-appointed estate of Lord Montague, 
The video showed the band members posing as upper-crust elites gallivanting about or basking in the good life. Russell, clad in a cream leisure suit, is evidently shot and murdered by a shotgun-toting Martin Gordon when the song's first gunshot rings out. Hmm. Listeners will be relieved to know that Russell appears apparently unscathed in the remainder of the promo film. Gordon, however, would get his comeuppance in a matter of months, as he was unceremoniously sacked by Ron and Russell due to unspecified personality conflicts. More on that later. Undeniably, Kimono My House begins on a dizzying high note with that first song, so a first-time listener may be forgiven for assuming that the remaining 33 minutes is a downhill slide, but it's not. Remarkably, the entire band is up to the task of crafting a consistently catchy, compelling, and vital LP of music. Ron here has crafted his most succinct set of pop songs up to this point, very economical. Even though he sacrifices little in the way of challenging chord progressions and arrangements, Russell masters every note he sings. Not odd for him, of course, but he brings a new urgency and a pop radio friendliness to his vocal approach. Adrian Fisher distinguishes himself as one of the more accomplished and passionate rock guitarists of the time, seriously underrated. Um, as well, uh, Dinky Diamond brings an elegance and versatility to the songs while still sounding propulsive and hard-hitting. And Martin Gordon teams up with Dinky to work in some surprisingly sticky grooves, like the aforementioned Barbecue and several more tracks, um, to underpin uh, the songs on the album. Let us take a closer look and listen to the rest of Kimono My House's Side 1. Track 2, Amateur Hour, barely allows the listener to catch their breath in the wake of the explosive crescendo of the previous song. It's upbeat, very, very catchy. Amateur Hour was a natural choice for the album's follow-up single. Believe it or not, Amateur Hour actually picks up the pace from this town, pulsing at a higher tempo and giving the listener the giddy sensation of careening in circles on a carnival ride that also doubles as a sex orgy. This orgy setting is intentional, by the way, vis-a-vis -vis Ron's lyrics, which are more straightforward and in ways more acutely observed than those lyrics on this town. Once again, focusing on the confused and frantic sexual awakening that accompanies puberty, Amateur Hour harkens back to Beaver O'Lindy, for example, with its uh, setting of horny adolescents frantically pairing off to learn the ins and outs of sex and human mating rituals. Through Russell's eternally pubescent lilting, Ron Mayle's words point out the sometimes unbearable tension between wanting to choose the most desirable partners early in life, before someone else gets them first, and the fact that during this time of utmost urgency, we are, as a species, the least equipped to master the task at hand than we'll ever be. Sings Russell, Girls grow tops to go topless in, while we sit and count the hairs that blossom from our chin. Our voices change at a rapid pace. I could start a song at tenor, then end at bass. So choose your partners, everyone. If you hesitate, the good ones are gone. It's a frantic ride, the song, indeed. Uh, it begins with Adrian Fisher's guitar chiming out a high-pitched 
10 note riff uh, before Ron takes over rhythm duties on, on his RMI electric piano. The verses between the choruses uh, take a slower tempo, but Dinky's cymbal work keeps that tension still ratcheted up. You can imagine someone spinning the bottle in the center of a huddled circle of anxious, sweaty teens, all camped out in the living room while the parents are away. And then when the bottle comes to a stop and points out its lucky winner, that's when the band begins to pound out the chorus. Like this town, Amateur Hour had some chord work that must have made Adrian Fisher grouse, and the song appears to be written in B-flat major, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, which was not a common convention in rock or pop music. There transpired a forbidding bit of drama during the recording sessions for Amateur Hour. Martin Gordon had originally played his bass part with his preferred instrument, a Rickenbacker uh, 4001. Now, Ron and Russell were unhappy with the sound of that instrument. Not Gordon's playing, mind you, the sound of the actual instrument. And against Gordon's objections, they made him re-record his part with a Fender Precision. He wanted no part of it. Gordon made no secret of his grievance, and he turned his back to the band while re-recording, staring stony-faced at the secretaries at the other side of the studio's glass window. He didn't even stick around to hear the playback. He bounced right out of the studio after uh, making that uh, re-recording. Sparks didn't get to promote Amateur Hour with another appearance on top of the pops as there was a BBC strike then, and there was no promotional film recorded. Still, the single, released in July 1974, reached number 7 in the UK charts, 12 in Germany, and 19 in Ireland. Amateur Hour became another song that got name-checked by future bands. Vince Clark and Andy Bell of Erasure listed that song as one of their favorites by Sparks and later recorded a synth-pop version with Ron and Russell for their uh, Plagiarism album in 1997. That recording uh, should sound familiar to listeners of this podcast. Uh, let's hear Amateur Hour right now. <laughs>
The B-side to the Amateur Hour single was another kimono outtake, the hard-rocking Lost and Found. Uh, a lyrically straightforward song about an unlucky man's lost wallet uh, making for another guy's lucky day. Uh, the track recalls the style of Sparks' earlier rockers like No More Mr. Nice Guys. Lost and Found is tighter in its execution, um, of course, uh, keeping in line with the general theme of uh, e uh, economy uh, as uh, the other songs uh, in the uh, recording sessions for Kimono My House. Uh, at the same time, there are still plenty of unexpected stops and starts in that song, as well as, uh, again, some genuinely interesting chord changes.
Track three, back on the album, Kimono My House, features the first of Ron's many songs about narcissism and from a narcissist's point of view. Falling in Love With Myself Again has a boisterous pub sing-along thrust to it. Um, it, it opens with a thunderous grandiosity thanks to a brief interplay between Martin Gordon and Dinky Diamond. Gordon plucks out a few descending notes from his instrument. It sounds so overpowering. It sounds like it could be a bass trombone. And uh, Dinky accompanies that with a few hits on, I think it's a timpani, and then uh, followed by a cymbal crash. All of this drama serves to set the stage for a narrator whose self-importance knows no bounds. Now, Ron is having a lot of fun with the subject matter here, with some truly cheeky lines here, like, I bring home the bacon and eat myself. Here's to my health. Hope that I am feeling well. I'm burning the candle at both ends. Oh, well. Yes, I think that I'm falling in love with myself again. This is one of um, many Spark songs that made me laugh out loud when I first heard it. Uh, Falling in Love has a similar sea chanty vibe uh, to one of Sparks' earliest songs when they were half Nelson called Johnny's Adventure, but the style benefits a hundredfold from the beefed-up rhythm section here. A spiritual sequel to Falling in Love with Myself Again would show up on uh, 2002's little Beethoven song, I Married Myself. Let's uh, go ahead and take a listen to Falling in Love with Myself Again right now.
Song 4 showcases Ron Mayle's literate side with the character study Here in Heaven. In the song, Romeo calls down from the afterlife to Juliet, who has apparently thought twice about making good on the lover's double suicide pact. Ron reveals um, a less sardonic and slightly more sentimental side to his lyric writing in Here in Heaven, even if the words uh, do come from the mouth of a universally known fictional character. Up here in heaven without you. I'm here in heaven without you. Up here in heaven without you. It is hell knowing that your health will keep you out of here for many, many years. Still, there's a bit of that narcissism in there, isn't there? The song is done in a minor key, but as one of the album's harder rockers, it doesn't come off as mawkish or maudlin in the least, in my opinion. The The band is given quite a lot to do as well, with Adrian Fisher getting um, to employ a rare solo near the song's end. And as for Russell, if the pitch of his falsetto is striking here, just wait until you hear the last song on side two. Here's Here in Heaven.
the final song on side one of Kimono My House may be the greatest anti-holiday pop song ever recorded. The song brandishes its cynicism right there in the title, Thank God It's Not Christmas. Ron inhabits a morally unappealing character in the song who lives to hit the bars and carouse with women other than his wife, rather than have to endure the miserable drudgery of home life with his wife and children. For him, any day where he's free from the forced obligation of spending time at home with his family, any day that isn't, let's say, Christmas, is a happy one. Thank God It's Not Christmas is a highlight on an album full of highlights. Notably, it shows Ron's composition habits at their most idiosyncratic. For one thing, we don't get a chorus until exactly two minutes in, but my God, is it euphoric when it hits. Secondly, the song doesn't seem to want you to know what key it's in, and when you think you've got a handle on it, it changes to something else. And thirdly, the time signature shifts several times, and... It's a patient and accomplished drummer who can keep up. Uh, I have an interview um, after this section of the podcast with Monty Mallon, by the way, who does speak specifically to um, to what Dinky Diamond is doing uh, on this song. That's so Im- impressive. Um, now, of course, this is what Dinky Diamond does. He is patient and accomplished, and he's, uh, he's able to make it seem uh, effortless. He's at the peak of his powers here, as well as Russell... Uh, who gives us the most impassioned delivery of his career up to that point. Thank God It's Not Christmas is premium-grade Sparks, demonstrating flawlessly that irony can be delivered with gusto and passion when it's in the right hands. Here's a postscript that I feel needs to be noted. Um, Ten years later, Queen would give us the polar opposite of this song, and it's right in the title. Thank God It's Christmas was, unfortunately, as earnest in its treacle as Sparks' original was in its cynicism. I don't know whether Freddie Mercury and company were consciously looking to Sparks' original in 1984, but hearing the two songs back-to-back kind of tells you all you need to know about how these two bands that seemed very similar to each other on the surface were actually often just bizarro versions of each other. Here's Thank God It's Not Christmas.
As I said at the top of the episode, Kimono My House was a mammoth release, even though it was only 10 songs and 36 minutes long. Um, for the sake of time, I am going to save side two 
for the next episode, and then I'm going to explore the aftershocks of Kimono's release in terms of how it permanently affected Ron and Russell's career, how the writing was on the wall for any musician who dared to think that they were ever going to be anything more than a temporary hired gun for Sparks, and how, more broadly speaking, that record changed the game for pop music and its fans for good. But first, there's a sad coda to this era of Sparks' career, and rather than wait until later in this podcast series, I'm going to go ahead and broach it now. I'd like to take this moment to recognize the life and the music of Norman Dinky Diamond, perhaps the best known and best admired of Sparks' many drummers over the years. Dinky remained a member of Sparks for the duration of their three-year, three-album stretch as a British-based band. His contribution to the success of the so-called Island Trilogy is hard to overstate. According to other short-timers like Martin Gordon, Dinky never seemed to consider his role in Sparks as much more than a job. But it was a job he really seemed to enjoy a lot. He didn't take success for granted. He was more than happy to work at the Island Records offices, answering phones and doing paperwork while not in the studio or on the road with Sparks. It was in those offices that he met his future wife, Lee Packham. Sadly, that marriage did not last long. As was Ron and Russell's proven M.O., when the brothers decided it was time to change musical direction and move back to the States in late 1975, the other band members were summarily dismissed. Dinky did not handle his firing from Sparks well, and developed a debilitating drinking habit which infected every aspect of his life. Although he attempted to break back into the music industry with a Sparks spin-off band in the 1980s, that band was unsuccessful, and Dinky retreated into drink and depression throughout his remaining years. A few years after Dinky and his then-partner Jane Gant had settled into a modest home in Berkshire, he got into a contentious argument with a young neighbor over noise concerns. After asking for and receiving no cooperation from the neighbor to keep the volume down, nor getting any assistance from the police, Despair got the better of Dinky. On September 10, 2004, he hanged himself from the loft ceiling in his home. The coroner stated that he had four times the legal limit of alcohol in his system at death. Upon learning of Dinky's passing, Ron and Russell posted the following statement on the Sparks official website. We are very saddened by the news of Dinky Diamond's death. We hold fond memories of working with Dinky and of his contribution to several of our albums during the 70s. Our hearts go out to his family and friends. They then had a wreath sent to his funeral. Now, I certainly don't want to end this episode on a down note, but I do think it's appropriate to celebrate Dinky's contributions to the larger story of Sparks. So I'd like you to stay tuned for another interview with friend of the podcast and author of the Sparks Drummers Project, Mr. Monty Mallon. 
In this interview, Monty talks about what made Dinky special as a musician and why he's still looked up to today by drummers in the know. Until next time, this is Christian Huey reminding you to dance, goddammit. Hey there, Monty. How's it going? Hey, Christian. It's great to talk to you again. Always great to talk to you, uh, uh, Monty, here on the show. Uh, Monty, for those of you who don't know, is a good friend of the podcast. He has his own podcast, So Important. Um, there's a lot of really uh, diverse, uh, cool stuff. You've interviewed a lot of really neat people, and you're also a drummer. Yes. Well, thank you for the kind words on the podcast. Uh, I am a drummer, and let me go, get right back at you and tell you what a great job I think you're doing with this podcast. I look forward to every episode. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it, man. So yeah, that's great. I knew know you had a, a few things that you wanted to say about Dinky and his playing and his style. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if yeah, I'm I'm happy to. Um, and I think if if you don't mind, I'll just pick up where I left off last time. Uh, one of the points that I I tried to emphasize when we talked last time was that Ron was already even on those first two Bearsville albums showing uh the complexity of his arrangements and you know you you had someone like harley feinstein who was creating basically the template for sparks drumming and i talked about what a wonderful job he did in that respect and i think what you see here is uh an actually is actually a maturation not only of ron's arranging skills because everything is more refined uh but also you see a couple other things you see a very uh, a very sympathetic producer who had good, who, who is a very well established. He had strong ideas about where he could take this band, and clearly Ron and Russell were in sync with him. And the other thing that you see is Ron's skills not only as an arranger but also as a composer coming to the fore here. And obviously, he always was a composer. He never did things in a traditional two-four straight-ahead rock and roll uh, context. But what you see is that he's actually thinking uh, in, in this compositional sense of putting these songs together to create these little uh, standalone masterpieces of music. Um, and there's really this is what got me so attracted to them in the first place was listening to this and thinking, wow, these guys are really doing something very different with their, their music than what I traditionally would listen to. Uh, and, and you hear that. In, in the arrangement, but also in the composition. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is because as a composer, you want, you have a good sense of what you want all of the instruments to do. And I get the sense, and this is just me talking. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but my sense is with the first two records, there were these very complex arrangements and they had an idea of what they wanted the instruments to do and they put it all together. But here I have a sense that like a composer, he says, I want the drums to do this. I want the guitars to do this. I want the bass to come in over here at this part. He had it all written out in his mind What is how I hear it. So when I listen to it, I hear what Harley did with those first two records, keeping up with Ron and really creating something new. What I hear with Dinky is Dinky taking all of this to the next phase. And Dinky had something that I think is, is, is invaluable to what Ron wanted to do, which was this sense of, uh, well, which was this finesse 
that he brought to it. He had the power and he deployed that when that was necessary. But he was also, my guess is he was a very accomplished drummer. He was probably trained. Uh, he knew how to do basic drumming patterns and things. Uh, you know, what we call the rudiments mm-hmm. and you hear that being integrated into the music all the time and you hear very specific things uh, being played out and you could hear that he and Ron, he was sympathetic with what Ron, what Ron wanted to do. And when I was doing the interviews a few years ago, uh, I talked one – one of the people I interviewed said that he was a great listener. He really listened to what, what, what they were trying to do and he wanted to make sure that his part was copacetic with where they were going. So this is what I hear is the brilliance, frankly, of these three albums, uh, which is just this great vision that Ron had, this great music, a great set of musicians who are willing to put the parts together and create all of these little things just one after another for three records in a row. Dinky was right in the middle of all of that. So I, I wanted to unpack a couple of things right here and have you respond to it. So the, first off, those first couple of Bearsville records, uh, well, let's go even before that, when they made that so-called demo record. I mean, there were tracks on there that had improvised percussion or almost no no percussion. So when when I hear those first two Bearsville records with uh, Harley, and Harley does a fantastic job, uh, Absolutely. I, I, I wonder how much of that was um, improvised, you know, more or less, or at least that Ron didn't know enough about writing for a drummer to put that into his compositions and Harley would kind of fill the, those voids and it just happened to work. Whereas maybe, you know, this was a, this was a different approach. Well, would, you know, yeah. what, what's, 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 what's your view on that? We, well, I think that is precisely stated. And again, I'm talking about it from my own assumptions of what I hear. I don't, you know, uh, you know, it would be great to actually talk to Ron, about some of these things, but I hear it the exact same way. I hear that, uh, you know, when I hear it, Harley really liked the Tom Toms mm-hmm. and he looked for opportunities to bring them in. And we talked about some of the songs like Do Re Mi, uh, and a few of the others where he really was given some freedom to really go, go nuts on those Toms a little bit. And they created such a propulsive rocking sound to all those songs. You don't hear that on these three albums. You hear occasional Tom Tom rolls, but very, very, sparse, uh, very selective, uh, very short, um, very much just supporting, you know, you know, because they're placed there because I think that's what Ron wanted. Whereas I think with the first two records, they were played there because Harley could bring that to the table. Mm-hmm. I think that that is something that is an example of what I was saying about Dinky, just bringing the whole thing to a new level, completely in sync with what, where Ron and Russell wanted to go. That's how I hear it. So maybe you know this is just a, a you know a, an uneducated guess. I'm wondering if you know Dinky heard a little or saw a little of what Ron was wanting to do in some of the songs, and he's like, "Oh, I can do a pattern for that. I can do a pattern for that. I can do a pattern for that." And you know, we, we can make this whole thing work. Uh, again, I, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm not a drummer, um, but I, I wanted I, to oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Respond. No, I was I was just going to say that I would agree with that. Um, I think you know. Uh, it, you know, if you take uh, if you take talent as an asset, for example, and you hear right at the beginning, it starts with that nice little uh, kind of syncopated beat from Dinky, da 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 da, and then on the uh, I think second or third measure, he does a little open hi hat, 
And it's the only place he does it, as far as I can tell, in the whole song. And I think that that must have been something that really appealed to Ron. Just put in this little open hi-hat for no real particular reason whatsoever. But nonetheless, it it just adds something unique to the song. I think that Ron felt he had his drummer. Yeah, you know what? I just realized that there's a lot more syncopation in those those island records than I recall hearing in the first couple of Bearsville records. Well, yeah. I, and, you know, you talked about my podcast where I talked about the backbeat. Sparks are the anti-backbeat. Um, you know, that's just that's just not really done in Sparks songs. And, and Dinky didn't do it. I mean, there are a few places. Yes, he plays on the beat, of course. But as a general rule, he's playing parts. And and I think that gets to this sense of a real composition that they're putting together as a band totally under Ron and Russell's guidance. No, no discussion about that. But clearly they had a they had a, a vision in mind for what each of these little nuggets should look like. And, and you hear that song after song after song. Do you know much about what Dinky was doing before he joined Sparks? Um, I don't. I'm sorry. I, I know he had been playing in bands for years. Uh but I, I, I think he just answered. I, I, I do know this that he was dating Muff Winwood. The producer was Muff Winwood, and he was dating Muff Winwood's secretary. So <laughs> Muff Winwood might have been the one who brought him into the band at that point, or said, "Hey, I know a drummer." Yeah. And he turned out to be the right drummer. In terms of what else he was doing, I don't have that at the tip of my tongue. I'm sorry. No, he was not one of the members of Juke, whom Sparks kind of pilfered members from during those couple of years, was he? Yeah, again, I, I, you know, you're getting into the cat <laughs> stuff. I'm not really. Uh, That's okay. That's yeah. okay. I'll, 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 I'll hit the books. Um, so I mean, um, you can always ask Rude. That's true. Yes, Rude is is always quick with the answers <laughs> with with these kinds of things. Um, where are there any? You mentioned talent is an asset. Obviously, you know, one of the the best known songs uh, from the Kimono album, and and one of my favorites. Um, are there are any others that springs your mind from either kimono or propaganda, you know, or um, or even uh, in, indiscreet, where you feel like Dinky is 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 really uh, is really giving a master class and and what he's doing? There, there is one, but let me uh, and it's on kimono. But let me just go backward a little bit because sure. I know we're covering all three of those albums. I mean, on indiscreet, what I love about Dinky's playing is the versatility that he shows there's so many styles on that album uh you know from the it ain't 1918 to uh don't leave me uh under the table with her to looks 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 to the straight ahead rockers to something like hospitality on parade or um or or uh what's the the one i'm thinking of getting the swing of course oh yeah 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 the, yeah, the, the big I mean, band he, or or no does, sort of the marching band sort marching of band. yeah and and it's not that he's doing anything on that album that's so phenomenally phenomenally complex i don't think but the point is that he just can do it all and i i love hearing that and then if you go back and i think that gets his versatility and the finesse that he brings and then i think if you go back one album before that to propaganda you hear a lot of the kind of things that he did a little bit more on um, Kimono. That that album and Kimono are kind of in sync. But I think it's interesting to hear what he does on something for the girl with everything, for example. He just provides that solid propulsive beat completely locked in with the bass 
from Ian Hampton. It's, it's really a, a wonderful example. And then he has a few others on that one where he's just providing a nice solid beat. And of course, I have a personal favorite of Bon Voyage. I love his playing there. But again, it's not a power drumming in any way on a song like that. It's just playing that nice back you know, that back of the music beat and letting the, the keyboards play out and the guitars play out. But then I think it's really on Kimono where he really gives the master class. Uh, there's song after song. I mentioned talent is an asset. The other one that I would point to, um, just to kind of give an example, which I would call a master class in Sparks composition overall, is, uh, thank, is, um, thank God it's not Christmas. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, to me, it's, there's nothing to do with pop music. It's, it's a progressive piece of music, you know, clearly in an orchestral mode, clearly being played on rock instruments, but it's progressive. There's nothing pop about it. And if you listen to all the different parts of that song and how he changes his beat, always with some syncopation throughout the entire song, that it to me is really the master class for Dinky Diamond. And, you know, if you start at the beginning where you have Adrian Fisher coming in with that piercing guitar and then he comes in that cascading and he comes in with those clear, succinct uh notes on the um on the hi hat, and then as this as that opening progresses, he starts to introduce the bass drum a little bit, and then the bass drum builds a little bit right into you know, right as a way of segueing into Russell's vocals. And then if you listen at each part of the song, whether it's the vocals or the chorus or the bridges or the changes in the verses, which they have in every verse, changes in the middle, he changes along with it. And he does this throughout the whole song, and it sounds effortless, and it sounds smooth. And to me, you know, for this song is five, is over five minutes long, and every little piece of it is so well thought out. Dinky is keeping up with every single thing and in fact he's to me he's key to it the way he keys in with the bass player the way he keys in with the guitarist depending on the part to me this is really a master class not only in ron's composition but also in dinky and his playing and and that would be the song i would say people should listen to if they really want to study dinky and really hear what he's bringing to the table in all of this and i am sorry if i'm going on too long no not at all not not in the least Uh, no, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, you know, I, we talked about this, uh, we've talked about this once, be- once before that the, those, those two Bearsville records, which, you know, of course I, you know, we, we both adore, but, uh, it, it does sometimes feel like there are songs that are these sort of Frankenstein monster pieces that are built up from dissimilar parts of what could be other songs. And uh, although compositionally there may be very different and distinct parts to a lot of the songs on these island records, uh, I, 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 I totally hear how Dinky makes everything just sort of gel and make he it really, sound like the same thing. He really does. Uh, I think sometimes in these discussions, Muff Winwood's role is probably uh, underestimated a little bit, or maybe, and this is my personal opinion, not given enough credit. He was a really accomplished producer. He really knew how to uh, get the best out of these guys and where to take them. And I think Ron realized that. And I think they, they, they were happy to work with somebody who was, who was like that. You know, I mean, obviously we know they worked with Todd Rundgren on their mm-hmm. first album, but I think Todd was a, a little bit of a different beast. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
Wow. And also they were at a, they were at a different stage of their career and, and songwriting capabilities that it made sense to work with somebody who was uh, really in the midst of all the popular music at the time in terms of what he was doing. As you uh, had been doing your uh, Sparks drummer drummers project, were you able to? Well, we didn't talk about this before, but were you were you able to get in touch with anyone who knew Dinky very well or worked directly with Dinky? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, Dinky had died uh, before what, many years before. I think he died in two thousand six or around then. And uh, you know, so obviously I wasn't going to interview him, but I talked to Muff Winwood a little bit. I talked to Ian Hampton. I think Trevor White is in there too. Um, there's an old schoolboy, a schoolhood friend of Dinky's who I was able to talk to, who had played hit with him in some earlier bands. And then I just talked to a couple fans, uh, you know. Uh, people who just who i knew had a real appreciation for him and then i added some of my own stuff but yeah i was able to talk to a number of people or oh and uh, harley gave something on that piece and uh hilly michaels added something dinky um uh, david kendrick added a little something they all had a nice little tribute to dinky that they added to that and talked about how they influenced them and i I want to say, I think the greatest tribute to Dinky is that when I talked to all these different drummers and I asked them who they thought was the best drummer for Sparks, invariably they said Dinky Diamond. No kidding. Invariably. Yeah. And I think that's really, really talented. (laughs) These are great people here. I mean, I, I mean, obviously we talked about Harley and then uh, you, you spoke with uh, David Kendricks and, and that's, uh, that's some pretty impressive stuff. That's one of my favorite, um, eras of sparks but they all spoke very highly of dinky and that says a lot like yeah they loved him they loved him and and they, basically most of them who didn't meet him regretted that they hadn't yeah now well, it, it definitely is a shame but i'm i'm really glad that he was able to uh he was able to um you know pr- provide uh what what he could to um to uh, the history that we have to enjoy here um, absolutely go ahead Oh, I'm no, sorry. I, was just, I was just agreeing with you. <laughs> Always agree with the host. Always agree with the host. Yes. Yes. Um, were there was there anything else that you wanted to mention about uh, about Dinky Diamond or his uh, performances on the, any of those three island records or any uh, any parting thoughts about his contributions? Well, I'm sure as soon as we're done talking, I'll have lots of them. Uh, but <laughs> we'll um, talk again. No. Yeah, no, but I, I think I covered it. I think that, you know, like I said, the greatest tribute is just how highly he was regarded by his peers, how highly he was regarded by everyone who played with him. Um, I will note, uh, he actually won the, uh, premier drummer of the year, premier drums drummer of the year award in 1975. He was really acknowledged for what he did. And, you know, I think that like the rest of the folks who play with Ron and Russell, you know, they know, like, I think, you know, they know that it's a short, you know, it's a short gig in, in yeah. for a lot of these guys. But I think that, uh, you know, he was somebody who really brought something special to the table. Well, thank you so much, Monty. Um, you know, the the world is uh, a bit of a dimmer place w- without him today. But I'm very thankful as a Sparks fan that he was able to contribute to what he did. Those were some fantastic records, some amazing songs and some great playing. And um, and I want to thank you so much for coming back on, Monty, and we'll be talking with you again real soon, I know. Well, I, I love talking Sparks. I love talking to drummers. So anytime, uh, I'm a phone call away, my friend. You got it. Oh, by the way, uh, just another reminder for you listeners, uh, do go check out So Important. That's, that's Monty's uh, uh, podcast.
Thanks. Well, thank you. And if I can also add to that, um, I have put together on Spotify a playlist of my favorite uh, drum, you know, spark songs with some of the outstanding drum parts that I personally like. And uh, if we can make that available to folks, give them a link. That would be great because, you know, all the songs we talked about are on there and uh, you can listen to it and really dig those drums, man. Consider it done. I'll make sure that it, that it's on there. All right, my friend. Have a good night, Monty. You too.